Hello and welcome. I'm Trumpet Man and you're listening to the 40 Card College Podcast, a podcast about advancing your limited game, whether you're a first-time drafter or trophy master. So today on the podcast, we are going to have a question of the week and we're going to do a dive in on a main topic about format evolutions. And specifically, we're going to be looking at how do formats change over time and how does that affect basically how you draft them? Today, I'm going to put forth a few theories about how some formats look different and try and generalize them into a few different terms that we might be able to use moving forward into formats to think about just how do we approach sort of week one versus week or week three or four, and then also those later stages of the formats, because formats definitely do change, and some formats have some similarities across them, and we might be able to use those types of uh, data points, different sets effectively, to think about how formats could be similar and what type of format are we in. So that's going to be our main topic. But before we get to our main topic, we have uh, just some things we're going to go through. So the first up is uh, the Patreon. So the Patreon is basically the reason that I'm still able to put forth uh, this podcast every single week. One of the perks of the Patreon is the first week that you sign up, you get a shout out on this very show. So I want to give a shout out to Spirit Token, Joe, and Cool Jets. Thank you so much for your support. Really appreciate that. If you're interested in supporting uh, this show and everything going on at 40 Card College, that includes, you know, the website and the draft videos, then go ahead and check out the Patreon linked in the show notes, and you can find the Patreon and everything else related to uh, this show um, anywhere that you search 40 Card College. So definitely um, just take a look there, see what tier might work for you. This week on 40 Card College... Um, there are several things. So here in the rundown, let's go just go over what you might find on the website. This is just a short segment where I just want to talk about what happened that week. So the first up, we had a video featuring Dominaria United Alchemy. So there's a draft video that went up this week where we explore all those new additions with Alchemy. I actually think it was a pretty a pretty interesting Alchemy set in terms of draft. Sometimes you get these draft formats and then all these alchemy cards just get thrown in and they kind of just make the format worse. I didn't really feel that with Dominaria. United, I felt like the alchemy cards added some interesting twists on the format and sort of balanced out different elements. I thought aggressive color pairs got a few new tools, which was nice to fight against Domain. But Domain got uh, some cool little rares and things. There's there's still the alchemy problem, I would say, where most of the cards, like a lot of the designs, just have draw a bunch of cards attached to it. So when you do put that type of card in a limited environment, where normally that doesn't exist, and suddenly you play a card that just draws like three to six cards, it kind of invalidates what the other cards are doing. But I felt like that was fewer cards this time around in Alchemy compared to maybe some of the past formats. And it did, again, add some nuance. Like, for example, like Red-Black was better to draft. White decks had an interesting new one-drop, which was powerful. So yeah, just some good aggressive cards and then just ways to utilize some of the mechanics for the slower decks too. So overall, I would say I thought Dominant United Alchemy was a success and kind of a cool new twist on things. Next up, we have uh, the starting main course. So this was the second in the series. Everything was the second in the series this week. So for starting, we had aggro, midrange, and control. So if you're just kind of trying to figure out, hey, what's limited all about? Um, last week, we covered the basics. This week, we continue that trend, but talk about archetypes in general. So what is aggro, midrange, and control? If you've been playing for a while, you, you kind of understand those terms, but if you want a refresher on it or just kind of a little bit of a review, check out that article on aggro, midrange, and control. For the developing main course, we really focused on improving your card evaluation. This was a fun one to focus on because it really ties into today's main topic when we talk about format evolutions. But when we sit down to draft a format, what does it look like and how do we know where to start? 
because if you open up a pack and it's a brand new set and you don't know what any of the cards do, it, it can be extremely overwhelming. So what do you do in those situations? How can you prepare yourself? And then also moving forward in the format, how do you keep your card evaluation going? Progress that moves forward rather than something that's static. So really that article is focusing on that aspect of card evaluation. Because oftentimes we think of card evaluation as this very just, it's a one, one-shot thing, either the card is good or bad. But really that's not what card evaluation is. I would say card evaluation, that's one aspect to it. But if you really want to improve your card evaluation, you have to think about context. And because cards always change in context, because of metagame shifts or your understanding of what's good and bad about a card or or how it interacts with other cards that you might have over or undervalued, that can actually change your card evaluation on a card as it applies to all those different elements. So thinking about card evaluation in that way, I think is super important. And the article dives into a bunch of those topics as well. The last article that came out this week was for the advanced course, and it's all about reading your opponent. And when we talk about reading your opponent, it's really talking about what kinds of cards and specifically what cards do your opponent have in their hand. And obviously no one has, you know, psychic powers, so it's impossible to know exactly what your opponent has. However, when your opponent plays certain ways, then, you know, you can figure out more often than not ranges of cards that your opponent might have or like wow they're really playing like they have a combat trick and if you know the combat tricks in the set you can even sometimes narrow it down to one or two possibilities for the specific combat trick they might be representing if you're not thinking that way then you can't really know what's in your opponent's hand and you're you're kind of just playing the game blind and hoping everything works for the best um it is kind of like i i said an advanced topic that's why i wrote it in that category. But I think anyone could read that article and get something out of it in terms of getting a better understanding of thinking through playing out the game. Um, So there's a lot of specific examples in that article um, while still applying broadly that it's going to be useful across formats. So I encourage you to check that out. So that's the rundown for this week for what was on, uh, you know, 40 Card College, the website. Um, So I encourage you all to check it out. We also have a Discord um, that is a public Discord. You can join, uh, talk about you know, Dominary United, Magic as a whole, Limited, all that good stuff. Um, so I encourage you to check that out. Um, it's pinned everywhere that you can find 40 Card College, whether that's the Twitch stream, which is uh, twitch.tv um, Trumpetman. Um, so check that out. Um, and also on the Twitter for 40 Card College and the website and in the show notes here. So we'll make sure that you have access to that. If you'd like to join the Discord, um, we have a great community that we're just getting off the ground. So it's an awesome place to be, um, especially as the new set Brothers War is going to be hitting here in about a month's time. So it's going to be a nice time for you to jump in and check it out. Questions of the week is a series of questions that have been uh, asked by the community on Patreon. So if you're interested in getting your questions answered on the podcast, right here in this section, then go ahead and do that. No one's asking questions. So uh, I've gone gone ahead and picked a question that I thought would be fun to talk about. So your your question could be featured here next time. Uh, But the question I picked out that I thought would be fun to talk about on the podcast, what do you think is more important, a good draft experience or good gameplay experience? So we always talk about like draft as this kind of nebulous thing but there is the draft portion which i think there are good draft portions and bad draft portions and then there's the gameplay right are the games interesting and interactive and fun to play like those are two very separate things even though they're tied together so i want to kind of think about like while you have dominar united i would say that has a good draft portion because every single pick you make opens doors and avenues that you have to kind of follow to their logical conclusions. So like if you start to go down that like spells matter, Tolarian Terror Road, you actually don't care about a lot of the other random blue cards. Uh, you only care about taking cards that are going to fuel your Tolarian Terror so that 
you can reduce its cost and get into play for one or two mana. Or, you know, you have this option of, do I take these domain payoffs or do I take the lands? Where am I? Like, what point in the draft am I in? Am I going to be all in domain where I have like seven to, to nine lands? Or am I kind of like two or three colors with a light splash where I can get away with having like four or five lands? And how many real payoffs do I have? Am I more aggressive with Myria's Outriders? Is that just mid-range? You know, am I, am I using that as a way to close the game? So it's like constant questions you're being asked in the draft portion of Dominaria United, which I think makes it a really good draft format from the draft perspective. That being said, there's only maybe like four to six overarching like archetypes in Dominaria United. Like you have a really aggressive decks and there's a few different versions of that. Mostly like white, red, red, green, beatdown, sort of blue, red spells sometimes. So like you have like these really like all in aggressive decks. You have the domain decks, which there's a wide variety of them, but oftentimes they're just looking to like go as big as possible, play all the good cards. You have the walls package, which can be its own deck or in the domain decks. And then you have sort of like the more controlling decks, which can be spell based, but they don't have to play Telerian Terror. So you kind of have like those four decks and a bunch of flavors in between. And so once you have your deck and you've done the draft portion and it's all like super dynamic, then when you get to the games itself, I feel like you're often, you you know your role a lot of time before you even go into the games, which I think has a little bit of a diminishing return in terms of the gameplay experience. Because when you draft your white, red, super aggressive deck, like, you know, you're going to have to be the beatdown. So you have prioritized cards like Destroy Evil and heroic charge because you know you always just have to clear a blocker and then play your heroic charge and go wide and win every time and i feel like because that is such a focused plan you don't have a lot of wiggle room in terms of white red to be you know a little more mid-range or maybe a higher in deck like you have to focus on like i need these cards kind of need to draw them in the right order make sure it all works out and then play the games it's in almost it's not autopilot but the games feel like there's a little less to them than maybe some other formats. And I think part of that is that the cards themselves in the format are actually very simple, but the way that they interact with each other is actually very complex, right? Like take, for example, we talked about Telerian Terror. Um, Telerian Terror, you know, uh, seven mana, ward two, cost one less for every spell that is in your graveyard. But at the end of the day, Telerian Terror, once you play it, I mean, it's just a five, five. It has ward two. It's a pretty simple card. Yes, you've done like everything you can in your draft to maximize it. And so because of that, your picks are super dynamic. But once you built your deck, you know that you want to cast your instants and sorceries and then play your Telerian Terror for as cheap as possible. So like that itself is not like super tricky or complex. And while you're trying to set up for the terror, you're just trying to interact with what your opponent's doing with your spell. You're having to map out a little bit in terms of like which spell to play maybe to best set up the terror. But you don't have a lot of like complex decisions where you're like, well, I'm trying to set up a Telerian Terror, so I have these few spells in my deck that go towards the Telerian Terror, but I'm also trying to have like this like flying aggro plan, so I'm trying to um, set up my board to do I play a spell to set up this Terror, or do I try to like stabilize um, what my opponent is trying to do when they're attacking me, or do I just like try to set up an Air Force and attack them? These are Those types of questions come up a lot more in other formats, because I think a lot of formats actually have pockets of synergy. And when you have pockets of synergy format, it's like you have three or four or five cards in your deck that super work well together. And when you make all those cards like come together, then it's super powerful. But you can't always guarantee that that's going to happen. So you have to sort of think in game, like which of your three to four to five plans are you ultimately going towards? Even though those three to four plans fit under the umbrella of the color archetype that you're in. In Dominar United, I feel like because the decks are so focused on certain plans that you don't have as much pockets of synergy. Another example, if you think about um, Wrath, which is the the white and blue legend, the 1-3, when you play a spell, you can tap two creatures to draw a card, and it has um, three white-white to give your team um, plus one, plus one, and Vigilance until in a turn. Like, that card cares about spells, and it cares about creatures, but in white-blue... Every single card is focused on putting spells and creatures, so it might be more maximized one way or the other, but your whole deck's trying to do that anyway. So 
when you draw your wrath and you draft around wrath, it, there's almost no way to not draft around it. Like you'd have to be actively going out of the way for that card to not be good. The only exception is like if you're trying to fit it into a different type of archetype, like if I'm drafting domain, can I also play wrath somehow? That's kind of interesting. But more in the draft portions as you're trying to figure out, wow, can I get into the white blue wrath deck? That's more interesting than I'm in white blue in the game and I drew my wrath and it's great because everything is about that. And part of what tells you that in terms of this pocket synergies versus like the whole deck going for something is that a lot of the gold uncommons in Dominaria United are kind of like pointed in the same direction. Like they play well together. If you look at our example with Wrath, then the other gold uncommon is Terra Kenerud, that 3-3 flyer that when you cast Minister Sorcerer, you get the 1-1. Like that makes 1-1s when you cast spells. And if you have a Wrath in play, then it also makes the 1-1. You have all these creatures, you tap it with the Wrath, then you draw your cards, and then you use Wrath to pump your team and attack. So it's like both those cards just care about instants and sorceries, and they work well together, and you want that to happen. Similarly, if you look at the blue-red signpost on commons, they're both the blue-red legends that care about spells, right? It's kind of the case if you look at a lot of the color pairs in Dominion United that they're very, very focused on specific lanes. And so... The more you can build those lanes in the draft and the more you can maximize it, actually the simpler it's going to be when you get into the games because everything's focused in the same direction. So I love the draft format of DMU, but I feel like the games themselves have gotten a little sailed just because they're kind of all the same. You're kind of going the same direction. You're kind of always having the same types of archetypes and you're playing against those same pillars of the format. If we look at the other side where it's like good gameplay, but maybe the draft isn't that interesting... For the other side, I really like Alchemy Horizons Baldur's Gate, which came out over summer, because that format, it's like, yeah, the draft, you find your open colors, and then you take cards in those colors, and the cards are pretty good, but they're pretty simple, straightforward. But then, actually, when you got into the games themselves, the games were incredibly dynamic because you're always adjusting on the fly. You were not always headed in the same direction because the cards themselves had interesting modality. And I think a lot of that had to do with specialize. Like specialize as a mechanic where you're discarding the basic lands or cards or color to flip to a certain backside. Seemed really convoluted and it was pretty confusing. And a magic card having six faces to it was like, what's even going on? But the cool thing about specialize was that once you got past that initial like headache and mind hurdle of what's going on, is that it added interesting flavor and micro decisions to the gameplay where you're like, Am I going to want to flip into the red side or the blue side in my red-blue deck? Um, and then when you drafted the card in a different time, did you want to flip to, you know, the blue side or the green side? And these are things you thought about during the draft, but also in-game. And then what was really cool is like, well, if I really want the green side of this card, do I hold my forest right now or do I want to play it so that I want to keep putting lands into play in case I draw like a more expensive card soon? Or do I hold this sort of middling card in my hand so that I can maybe discard it to specialize. Like if it was a spell that didn't seem that relevant late game, you might hold it to specialize with it rather than playing it out. So it added just like a lot of little nuance that you wouldn't see on first glance when you played the card. And um, it also made sure that it reduced variance, which was nice in games because you just didn't flood as much. And I feel like, you know, in Domino United, you kind of have to have like goblin pickers or some sort of plan to not flood. Goblin pickers, the 2-2 that you can rummage with. Whereas like, I felt like it was built into the very mechanics of Alchemy Horizons Baldur Gate in terms of not flooding. In addition to that, I think double team as a mechanic when you attack and you get an extra copy in your hand, while being very powerful, was actually super fun because like you were incentivized to kill your opponents double team creatures before they attacked so you kind of always had to be considering what their double team creature was going to do versus maybe just the better overall creature on their side like do you kill the double team creature before they get another copy usually but what if that copy didn't really matter that much it might be better to kill their other creature that's actually better or if they have like a hasty double team creature if you understand like the format and how the games progress, you might actually be able to hold up like your instant speed removal on a key turn to, to get their haster before they get another copy in their hand. There was a lot of interesting timing stuff. And then also with timing was like adventure spells, right? 
Blessed Hippogriff was the three and a white two three flyer that gave flying to another attacking creature, but you also could adventure it for a single white mana to give target creature indestructible until end of turn as an instant. And while that card was really good and got rebalanced, I think it added some really interesting pressures on the format where you had to figure out like, okay, your opponent has that card. How do I play around it and not give them opportunities to maximize their card and potentially two for one? Because if you could wait long enough, they just your opponent had to just play the Hippogriff so they couldn't get the value on the first half. Or if they just held it because they wanted that insurance policy with the Indestructible, then they just didn't get the Hippogriff, so they weren't able to pressure you. So while that card was too good, I think like what it represented for the complexities of good gameplay was super interesting. Whereas when I try to think about Dominar United, I think kicker spells were trying to go for that, where it's like, you know, oh, I've got this kicker card. It's really interesting. Do I just play my kicker card early? Because I, you know, I have the mana and I don't have the kicker mana yet. Or do I hold it for, you know, the kicker bonus? I think, unfortunately, it's just almost always right to wait and kick the spells. Unless for some reason, you know, you you want to cast it earlier because you really need to. There's a few exceptions. I think Fires of Victory is an interesting one uh, because it's a cheap removal spell on two. So you just play it on two if your opponent plays something good. It has Kicker for two and a blue. So Fires of Victory, you can play it on two mana as a removal spell, or you can play it as a five mana removal spell, draw a card. That one's kind of interesting because I think both modes are like pretty important to think about. And when you want to cast them is interesting. Considering the fact that you have Fires of Victory in your deck means like maybe you don't play as many lands out from your hand in case you draw it because then you can kick it and deal more damage. Like that's the kind of interesting card that leads to like really interesting gameplay. But if you think about a lot of the other cards, like, for example, Urborg Repossession. Yeah, technically you can play Urborg Repossession and not kick it, um, and it lets you get back one creature from your graveyard. But 90% of the time, you're going to play Urborg Repossession to get back two cards, and then you're going to use that to try to get enough card advantage to be able to win the game from there. And a lot of the cards felt like that, where it's like there was not enough pressure on the format that you didn't want to play your cards without kicker. On the other hand, there was a few um, cards that like you usually didn't kick it because the rate was good enough and you just played it. Um, so maybe those ones, it's like it wasn't as interesting. For example, like Friction Missionary. Oftentimes you would just play it on turn two because the two drop is so good that you would not wait to kick it unless you had just another good two drop to play, then maybe you could hold it. But I felt like when you have Friction Missionary, it's very obvious what to do with it in your hand. If you don't have anything else, on turn two, you just play it, right? If you can wait to kick your Phyrexian Missionary till turn four or later, and you have other things that you're doing, great, you just do that. So I felt like Kicker, like while it, it, it presented interesting questions, the way that you played it, it just fit almost too easily into what you were doing so that the gameplay itself like was not really interesting enough and the decisions were a little bit more straightforward. Um, so I don't know what you do to change that as a design. Like, how do you make um, it so that sometimes you want to kick the spell, but sometimes you don't? Maybe what would be interesting on a lot of the cards would be to make the power level of the cards actually a little bit closer. Like, if you think about Vine Shaper Prodigy, that's the uh, one in a green for a 2-2, but you can pay another one in a blue to kick it. And when it comes into play, then you get to look at the top three cards and put one in your hand. You almost always played that card as a 4-mana 2-2 two, two to, to get a new card. Um, very rarely played it as a 2-mana two 2-2. Two, two. I mean, you could if you really need a blocker. But I think the 2-mana two 2-2 two, two is so below rate that every time you did that, you felt like you were probably like losing and it wasn't very good. So maybe, for example, maybe that card like would have been a lot more interesting as like a 3-mana three 3-3, three, three, and you could have paid you know 2 more mana on that, to then have the same effect. So like maybe you have the 3-3 three, three mode on 3, and then a 3-3 three, three mode on 5 that got you a new card. Whereas like both those modes are like actually really good. And a lot of times you'd just be happy playing that on 3 mana for your 3-3. Three, three. Um, but it would be an interesting question. But it's not so good that you always want to play it as a 3-3 three, three on 3. Sometimes you want to wait until turn 5. Whereas contrasting that with Fire Action Missionary, 
which is a two mana two three lifelink but that card is so good that you just you just play it like there's not actually that much of a decision in fact if we're thinking about it this way in terms of framing the cards in terms of that good gameplay and making those kicker decisions i think fire action missionary if it was a two two lifelink for two mana then it would be a lot more interesting because that's still a really good rate, like two mana, two, two lifelink. We just play that card. In fact, it was a very good card in horizon uh, alchemy, uh, Baldur's gate, um, steadfast paladin was a two mana, two, two lifelink, just a good card. So if we think about fraction missionary, just being a two mana, two, two lifelink with the same kicker to bring something back, it would have been a lot more interesting of like, do I actually want to play that on turn two? Like it will help me win the race, but I'm not getting my value. So maybe I want to hold it. But I still probably usually play it. But, you know, if my opponent has a 2-2, then it's just going to trade. Whereas the 2-3 is like so above rate that it just kind of makes it uninteresting. I guess if I go back to the question of which do I think is more important, I think the best formats offer both, right? We have a dynamic draft where you're really trying to maximize on what's going on. And then the gameplay itself is rewarding and games are different. And how you use cards between games is really different. But those are like the best formats. And oftentimes I feel like you'll find that in like master's level sets or something outside of the typical release cycle. But I I can't necessarily say which of those would be in the last few years because I missed a couple years of Magic. But I've heard there's been some good sets like Kaldheim, things like that. I don't know if that applies, but maybe it does. I played uh, Neon Dynasty. Neon Dynasty, I think, is pretty good where i think it's not quite as good a draft format in terms of the drafts themselves as dominar united and i think some of the gameplay is actually not as good as the alchemy horizons Baldur gate but it's closer that both like both elements are quite interesting um because you're trying to maximize on certain strategies in kamigawa neon dynasty um you're trying to like build towards enchantments matters or artifact matters or a mix of them so you still have like those pockets of synergy while still trying to overall like find the best cards and play them but the games themselves like you're sequencing and figuring out like when you want to play um your various saga creatures to get the different effects and curving out was a little bit more i think dynamic than dominaria but not all the way um so I, I think the verdict's still out. And I think when you, you have the best draft format that hits on that and the best gameplay, that's when you have like those all-timer greatest of all time sets. And I think uh, neither Dominar United or um, Alchemy Horizons Baldur's Gate reaches either of those. But I think they're both good examples for specifically good draft in the case of Dominar United and good gameplay in terms of Alchemy Horizons Baldur's Gate. So... That is our question of the week. Kind of did a way more deep dive on that <laughs> than I thought I was going to at first, but I think it made for some um, interesting you know, discussion and um, theory crafting about what makes uh, formats tick. Let's dive into our main topic now. So I want to talk about metagame evolutions as they differ by format regarding archetype possibilities. So I was thinking a little bit about like when formats change over time, are there any patterns that I start to see in my own types of ways that I'm drafting the formats? And I came to the realization that when you look at archetypes drafted, the format itself, as it changes and evolves, naturally makes it easier to draft more archetypes or restricts the types of archetypes you can draft as people figure out what the good cards are and how to build decks. So I kind of want to think about this in terms of three different types of formats regarding metagame evolutions. So you have formats that decrease options over time. So like as you draft them, as the metagame evolves, usually actually fewer archetypes become viable. So that's one type of format. We'll get into more of the specifics here. The other one would be increasing options over time. So as you draft the format, as the metagame evolves, actually the archetypes expand. And so at first it seems like maybe there's not that many archetypes, but by the end of the format, there's actually more than you started with. So that's an interesting angle. And then you have formats that I think are the most typical and they're a V-shaped curve format where kind of you start and the world's your oyster and all the archetypes are viable because 
no one knows what they're doing yet. So it's kind of the wild west. And those first like week or two, it's like super exciting because you just try and throw things at the board and see what sticks. Um, and that's kind of cool. So a lot of things you can do at the beginning. But then as people figure it out, it kind of narrows because um, certain cards are over and underdrafted. So you want to take advantage of the underdrafted strategies, which are just usually the good strategies. People haven't figured them out yet. So you're really benefiting by knowing what's up in the format. So you really like the band of decks you can draft is pretty narrow in the middle. And then as people figure out, it expands outward because I think the decks become closer in power level across the board. So you kind of think of this like V-shape where it's like everything's open, narrow, and then back to more things being open. So those are the three um, types of formats with metagame evolutions as my sort of theorizing is going on. So I want to look at a few different formats to put this into perspective of kind of how I'm thinking about formats, because then we could think in the future, hey, is this a is this an increasing archetype viability over time, a decreasing options over time, or is it the V-shaped curve? So why don't we start with decreasing options over time? So these are the formats where, again, there's a lot of things that you seems like you can do at the beginning. All the archetypes, like they have interesting build arounds, clear two-color directions in terms of their golden commons. So you're like, okay, there's a million things I can do here, right? You start trying that out in the beginning and everyone else is trying things out and seems like, oh, okay, like these are all cool things, but pretty quickly it starts to seem like, you know, the green-black deck just didn't get there. It's built around some random value engine with graveyards and graveyard synergies just aren't supported. So, okay, the green-black deck's gone and blue-red is spells, but like all the spells are terrible and then the payoffs don't get there and okay, that's gone. And you start to just like check off boxes of like, you just don't touch that anymore. And if you only have like four or five archetypes in the format and a couple weeks in, then you've definitely seen like decreasing options. So this op- often happens because the formats themselves weren't actually that balanced. So that's one reason. Or it's designed that way from the get-go. So for example, if we look at guild sets, so anytime we go to Ravnica, for example, usually, you know, the five guilds that show up, those are the five decks. And you might you might look at first like, wow, there's these, all these other build-arounds or maybe some of the guilds, you can like combine them to three-color archetypes where you can you know maybe draft two guilds and maybe that works but then you just start to realize no actually not only is there just the five guilds but only three of them actually are good so you went from like maybe eight to ten decks but then as everyone figures out the format and as the format is designed to be just draft the guilds then it quickly whittles down actually you only want to be these three guilds so that's a good example of decreasing um, options over time Um, Another one is when certain archetypes are just so much better than everything else or like a color or two misses entirely. So I think this really is exemplified by Alchemy Horizons Baldur's Gate recently. At the beginning of the format, like we kind of looked, the blue cards weren't very good. Turned out they were even worse than we thought. Uh, The aggressive cards like double team looked pretty good. Ended up being better than we thought until the rebalance. You really just wanted to be some form of Mardu aggressive decks. Because if you didn't draft the Mardu aggressive deck, you were just hemorrhaging win percentage. Yeah, it would be cool to draft other decks, but except out of, you know, very specific cases or when you got cut out of the good lane, then you just wanted to go with the default. So in these formats where you have decreasing options over time, doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad format. It's probably not going to be like the best format uh, when you look back on it. But as long as the draft is still interesting in terms of those options, like you know which options are available and it's interesting to figure out like which one is it and if there's little sub-variants within those archetypes, it can still be kind of a fun draft format. And then as long as the gameplay is good, right? Like I was just talking about how I don't actually think the drafts themselves were that great in Alchemy Horizons Baldur's Gate, but like the gameplay was actually really good. And I guess to answer my question from before, now that I think about it a little bit more, I actually played more of Alchemy Horizons Baldur's Gate than I have of Dominary United because I thought the gameplay was so good. Now, admittedly, that set was out longer than Dominary has been out. So by the time, you know, we get to Brothers War, maybe it'll be more even. But just looking at like how much I was playing, um, I played quite a bit of the Alchemy set, which is even interesting to me. So those are sort of the decreasing options over time. 
Um, so look for that as you're getting a couple weeks into the format. Are my options limiting? And if so, do I think they're going to expand as people figure out the format more and it actually makes it more possible to draft? Or is it just they're limited because of the way the format's designed itself? So we'll, we'll talk about the expansion again in a little bit with that V-shaped curve. But that's decreasing options over time. On the other side, you have increasing options over time, where you look at the previews, you look at the set, maybe build out some deck skeletons, and some of the archetypes just look like they're not getting there. And you're like, I, I don't really know what white-black is doing in the set. Like, you kind of have maybe white aggressive cards and black controlling cards, and it just doesn't look like they go together at all. But then sometimes, as you figure out the format, and as you know, everyone in the community figures out the format, format actually expands because certain elements of the white cards and certain elements of those black cards form together to make a cohesive whole. And you start to figure out how to actually build more decks. And so over time, it expands just because your understanding of the format expands. It's not that the deck wasn't there. It's that you just didn't know how to build it at first. Also, sometimes there's like hidden archetypes. So even if everything is there, you know, at first glance and everyone's drafting all the quote unquote, you know, normal decks available, sometimes you'll find like a hidden archetype that's built around maybe like a key card or cards that looked bad that actually like coalesced to being good together. I think, you know, the classic example that's probably talked to death at this point and uh, you kind of have to be an old timer to get the reference, um, but would be original Innistrad, right? With the spider spawning deck. Because if you think about spider spawning, spider spawning is four and a green and it's a sorcery and it makes a one, two spider with reach for every creature in your graveyard. Um, and it has flashback and it comboed with a bunch of other cards so that you could just keep looping spider spawning over and over and over again. But it played a lot of bad cards to be able to do that. Um, so, you know, for a long time, no one even knew that spider spawning was a viable card. Um, they're like, what, that, that card's not very good. Like, I get like three or four spiders and then that's it. Like, from my uncommon, that's probably not worth building. It's the perfect example that like, it actually spawned an entire archetype based on it plus the other few cards that looked bad. And that's happened, you know, a, a few times over the course of Limited. Maybe not to that extent, but there's a lot more like subtle archetypes where cards didn't look that good but then once you kind of put them together they kind of come together and are more than some of their parts that happens all the time i think even in like dominario right like at first writing necromass you're like is that card even good like it's a cost reducer i have to do all this work i have to play these eerie soul tenders to mow myself and get creatures in the graveyard just so i can have a five to five five death touch for cheaper like, is that actually worth it? And there it's like pretty obvious what you have to do. So everyone tried it pretty quickly and realized it worked. But if it was a little bit more subtle or there was a card where it like didn't quite spell out as much what you needed to do, then you can think of formats where you can kind of unlock the cards and make them better. And they were sitting there the whole time. You just weren't using them. I think another good example recently um, would be, again, Neon Dynasty. You look at Neon Dynasty and you're like, oh, there's all these cool enchantments and ninjas and artifacts and it kind of all comes together but uh, the red cards look kind of bad when you first looked at uh, neon dynasty people were pretty down on red overall but it turns out if you just like play red by itself and it didn't play well with others you could still just play like this red artifact based like all-in aggressive deck that actually was pretty good so it was an archetype that didn't exist at first but then later on it was another tool or archetype that you could add to your toolbox and use when it was open. Also, if we think about these increasing options over time, if you think about the mono red deck from Neon Dynasty, it's not that the deck was so good, but it's that the deck used cards that other people didn't want. In Neon Dynasty, the most powerful things you could have, be, could have been doing was playing all these sagas that turned into creatures. And so, you know, weeks one to four when people just weren't evaluating the sagas effectively you should just take the sagas and play the good card until those good cards were taken more appropriately then there was no reason to go into the red deck before you needed to the fact that there's increasing options over time think about it from your perspective like is it increasing options for you as you're drafting because if you know that a deck is underdrafted then it's not actually increasing options over time for you until the powerful cards are actually being appropriately drafted. 
In fact, it'd be very narrow for you because you should just be, keep taking the good cards until everyone catches on. That kind of leads me to these V-shaped curves. So I'm talking about how we understand metagame shifts for the archetypes that we draft. So I kind of want to look at Dominar United as an example for a typical format that has this V-shaped curve. It You can draft basically anything in the beginning. As you figure it out a little bit more, it narrows, and then it opens back up towards the tail end. Now, we're not quite to the true tail end of the format, but we're headed there. And I kind of wanted to look when I was thinking through what we're going to talk about this week on the podcast to some of my own data to see if it reflected my just initial feelings about the topic. And turns out like the data actually is pretty good. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to tell you what I drafted in weeks one, three, and six as we go through and kind of compare some of that. So in week one, uh, I drafted four red-white decks, two white-black decks, a Naya Agra deck, two blue-black decks, two red-green decks, three blue-white decks, two red-black decks, and two domain decks. So it's like I kind of just drafted like everything week one because I wanted to see like what was good. Um, I was playing a lot like that first week because Dominaria was exciting and I want to see like what was going on. So if I just look at that, I drafted eight distinct archetypes and white-red was my most drafted with four drafts, white-red. So I drafted that way more than other decks, but it was still less than like one-third of the overall drafts that I did that week. Um, it was representationally still not that much. So week one in Dominaria United, you could kind of be successful with anything. And I think there's a lot of reasons to, to that. Like people were figuring out how to best build towards those very key signs. Like everything is shouting at you in blue, like instants and sorceries matter, but which ones? How do I build that? How much does Telerian terror matter? Domain is very loud, right? It says on the card domain. How high do you take the lands? How high do you take the payoffs? How much do the rares matter? Right? These were the questions we were asking ourselves in week one because we didn't know the answers to them. So you had to kind of keep trying things out. And I know for myself, like, I wasn't very good at getting everything right the first time. I was trying to quickly adjust and figure it out quicker than everyone else. But everyone else was doing the same thing. So, for example, like someone's domain strategy week one might be, I'm taking all the lands and I'm going to see if I can get the powerful payoffs later on. Whereas someone else's strategy might have been, I'm going to take every payoff and then try to get the lands later on for my, my domain. And it was unclear which of those two paths was correct initially. Now, it turns out that it tends to be better to get the payoffs first, but you still have to take lands highly. So it's kind of an interesting balance between the two. So that was week one. You know, you're trying a lot of things. You don't know necessarily what works, but you're trying to figure it out. But then week three, if we look at it, so week three, I had eight total drafts. And in week three, here were my drafts. Four domain decks, two white-black decks, one Grixis deck, one blue-black deck, and one white-red deck. And here's what happened. It's like, if I look back at my data, even though people were trying a bunch of stuff in week one, I didn't draft very much domain relative to everything else because domain is what the set's all about. It's like Dominar United. Domain is on all these cards. It's exciting. It's flashy. We have all these dual lands at common. So everyone was looking at that and being like, wow, I want to draft domain. So domain actually, for me, in my pods, was massively overdrafted in week one. And I tried all this other stuff. But as people started to figure out the domain decks, lands stopped being picked overly highly. I could finally, you know, get six, seven, eight lands in a deck when domain was open in my seat, whereas that wasn't the case before. Before, when I was drafting, because everyone was trying to get all those lands and draft domain, it's like everyone was kind of just like train wrecking themselves. So you could draft everything but domain in my seats. And so the openness in terms of doing everything week one was everything but domain but by week three domain actually is still super powerful but people understand how to pick it more appropriately and because of that because everyone was trying to figure out domain from the get-go it settled much more naturally and so when it was the open lane i was able to capitalize on that and that actually narrowed the possibilities for me because that happened to be the most powerful thing that wasn't being as overdrafted a few weeks into the format. Contrastingly, week one, you could get Talarian Terrors to wheel. And it, as anyone has 
played Dominaria United, if you get four Talarian Terrors and all the instants and sorcerers to go with them, you just start dumping five fives left and right. So that's incredibly powerful. But Talarian Terrors week three, forget about it. I drafted maybe one deck that had Talarian Terror in it out of the eight because everyone was talking about Talarian Terror. It's the format. It's amazing. And when you start to talk about that in the discourse of it and content creators talking about it, suddenly Talarian Terror went from being underdrafted to overdrafted. And if you draft Talarian Terror, but you don't get the support, it's not that great, right? You're trying to force Talarian Terrors into a deck and you only have seven or eight spells. Well, then you're going to be casting a four to six mana Talarian Terror a lot of the time. It's just not going to be that good. So while the format consolidates, it can consolidate in interesting ways you want to be thinking about with the metagame in mind. So when I was actually narrowing my focus in week three, I was actually ignoring a lot of the blue decks because Talarian Terror was so overdrafted and it's core to a lot of the blue decks. Also at the time, I don't. I didn't really understand how to draft blue decks without Talarian Terror because it was so pivotal. I think you can still, at this point, now that things have settled, get away with drafting blue decks without Talarian Terror if you're not all in on that route. Like you can get away with playing Talus Lookouts, winning with three two flyers in the air, winning with other flyers, winning with tempo game plans, various other things. And so it's actually expanded over time because Terror is not as important um, to the blue decks. I think it's still like really a great path to go if you get them but it's not the only path. So that's where we're starting to look at more of that expansion too. Now, if we look at week six, it's a different different picture, right? Um, here I drafted seven times this past week and I drafted domain twice, red, black once, blue, black once, red, white twice, and blue, red once. So if we think about from week one, like I drafted a bunch of different things. Well, here in week six, I also drafted a bunch of different things. And I think there's a bunch of reasons for that. I think one of the reasons is that I personally am comfortable drafting basically everything in the format at this point. So if domain is open in my seat, I'm going to be drafting domain. If red black is open in my seat, I'm going to be drafting red black. Now, a few weeks ago, I wasn't comfortable drafting red black. I didn't understand how to make red black work because red's super aggressive, black's really controlling. But you can get some sacrifice engines going, and there's a lot of specific red-black cards that are based on uncommons. But there are a lot of uncommons that other people don't want. So if you're able to get all of those together, you can actually build this like killer red-black deck that's awesome. So that's just one example where it's like, yeah, the format has expanded because my understanding of it is uh, wider. I understand how to build the decks more. And people aren't taking the cards inappropriately like at different times so if we take red black for example let's look at hurler cyclops so that's the five four for three red red and you can pay one sack another creature hurler cyclops deals one damage to any target so if we think about hurler cyclops it's a card that really should only go in red black sometimes red white if you have a ton of tokens but people understand that now so they're not going to take a hurler cyclops unless they're in that exact lane for the card so what happens is Hurler Cyclops can actually go later, and the red-black player at the table, if there is one, they can actually gain access to that Hurler Cyclops. As a format condenses in the middle, when we're talking about that V-shape, so in like week three, Hurler Cyclopses were still being like kind of like figured out by other players. So you might have a, someone in a blue-red deck, and they're like, Hurler Cyclops, maybe I'll take that. Seems like it has decent stats. I can throw my Haunting Figment out of my opponent to close a game. That's just not how you want to be using Hurler Cyclops, and people don't do that anymore. Like, most people aren't going to take it for their blue-red decks. So in week three, when people are still figuring that out, and you, but you know how to draft, like, one of the most powerful decks, and it is more open as people figure that one out, like one of the most common ones, for example, Domain, that's why I was drafting Domain a lot, then I could really capitalize on that. So oftentimes, some of the most clear signposty decks, um, people figure out how to draft those, because they figure out how to draft those, they take the cards appropriately. And so because people are taking the cards appropriately, when it's actually open in your spot, it's easier to identify, oh, this lane is open. But when people don't know whether or not like a card is good or bad in a certain lane, they don't know how to identify that card. So they might take it too early or they might take it too late. And so you might get kind of like false power signals about what's going on. 
So for example, someone might be red white a couple weeks in and they might be thinking, oh, Keldon strike team. Like they didn't realize how important it was to the red white deck. So they were under prioritizing it and hoping it would wheel when it wouldn't. Um, and so someone might take that as, oh, I'm seeing a Keldon strike team sixth, maybe red white's open. Um, but the person passing it fifth pick was in red white. And so now suddenly both of them are fighting over red white when maybe they shouldn't have um, just because someone was undervaluing it. Um, and they might misinterpret the situation. So as formats narrow, it's oftentimes for your benefit to go to a place where people understand the cards. That way you get a better understanding of when a lane is actually open versus closed off when it looks open, um, or vice versa, right? If a lane is actually closed, but people don't understand what cards were important for that, they might actually be taking less important cards and passing you the more important cards. So it looks like, oh, this deck's really open, but it's actually not because the person above you is just taking worse cards in that color. And they might figure that they might still take good cards in that color combination later on, which is going to hurt you overall. So hopefully that gives you an idea of these increasing diversity of options, formats, decreasing option formats, and V-shaped curve formats. Again, I think most formats are sort of the V-shape because it's expansive, it narrows, you want to capitalize on where the metagame's headed. Then once you're comfortable with everything, draft more from a variety of options. But I just started to sort of formulate this theory. So it's probably something we could look again at the future and see like, hey, is that theory holding up? Is this one of those three formats or is it something different altogether? So, you know, let me know what you think. Definitely, you know, just tweet at me or uh, let me know in the Discord what you think about the podcast, this idea. Like, does it ring true to you? Um, I'd love to have a discussion about that. This would be the spot where people at the uh, ADEPT tier and above, I'd give them a shout out every single week. We don't have any patrons at that tier right now, but if you want to be the first one, hey, hop on board and I will be able to shout out your name uh, at this spot every time. Um, But until next week, Thanks for listening and see you next time on the 40 Card College Podcast.